beware of the teachers of the law. Um, of, I think it's called scribes in the ESV, but the teachers of the law, the scribes, because they like to walk around in flowing robes. That's what the NIV says. The ESV says long robes. Didn't everyone look? Here, children's books that I grabbed out of the library. Don't they all wear long robes in those days? Yeah, see, there's evidence. Yeah. So, so I'm not really sure. Um, I think maybe the NIV's version is better here. Uh, the the flowing robes. It sort of gives that impression of a of of, of luxury and power and you know somebody who's a cut above everyone else. Um, it really is hard to know where to start with this group of men who were called the scribes. Uh, read what it, it says about them. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honour at banquets. Yeah, I could, I'll just read out a few verses to you from, the, uh, from various places in the Gospels and, and just think about those, that verse there and, and what, the, uh, what the scribes were like and see how it fits in with, with how Jesus says we should live. Um, he who is least among you is the greatest from chapter 9. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And when you are invited to a feast, take the lowest place. You are not to be called teacher, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. It doesn't really fit very well, does it, with these, um, these, these scribes. They were, they were important people in Israel, there's no doubt about that. Uh, because they were the keepers and the interpreters of the law of God. Um, but they were actually not mentioned much at all in the Old Testament uh, up until the, uh, uh, the exile when, when the people of, of Israel were, were carted off to Babylon. Um, before that, where the word scribe appears, it's, it's always someone who's, who's a sort of like a secretary to the king. And when the king wants to... Uh, comes up with a new law or something will ascribe or he wants to write a letter to, the, to some foreign dignitary or to his people, the scribe would write it down. But that, that's a different thing altogether. After the exile uh, is when the, the, the scribes appeared. Somewhere between that time and Jesus' time, they became, they became a sort of a separate uh, profession. Um, a very important profession because they were the ones that people went to when they wanted to know what the Old Testament law, how it applied to them. Um, and, the, and, and of course, so just the very fact that they could read and write set them apart. Remember, this is 1,500 years before the invention of the, uh, the printing press. So uh, very few, there were very few copies of the law around anyway for people to read and, and not that many people who could actually read them. But th these were highly educated men who, uh, who knew their law very well and they were the ones in charge of it and so therefore they, they dispensed it. They passed it on to other people and told other people what they should do. They had a high status. 
It's interesting, though, how the, the robes, the flowing robes, which are the signs of their office, were, were so desired in that culture, um, where to be a, a scribe was a sign of some importance in society. Uh, you know, I've seen just in my short lifetime how this can change very quickly. Uh, when I was a, a lad, you, you could go down the street in Midland and you'd, you would see, often see uh, ministers, various ministers of the various denominations wearing the clerical collar and sometimes the, the black cassocky thing as well. Um, and it, it, was, it was a kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a status symbol, I suppose. I mean, it was certainly it was a, it was a profession that was uh, looked up to. Um, whereas now you never see it, do you? It just just doesn't doesn't happen, and it's a, it's a sign of the changing times, I guess. Um, but the extravagant robes that we still see worn by cardinals and and, bi and bishops and popes, um, they they arose in different times when uh, when the church was a powerful institution. In med medieval times, in particular, the, the church was the institution of power. They would tell kings and governors what to do. Um, but that's not how it was supposed to be. You know, the Apostle Peter, he was certainly an important, important person in the early church in, in Rome. Um, but he wrote this, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. To me, that doesn't sound like flowing robes and, and important seats and places of honour. And of course, those verses I quoted to you before all came from the New Testament, but going back to their own law, the book of Isaiah, which they, the scribes would have known very well. In chapter 66, it says, This is the one I esteem, he who is, is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. They would have known that, but they ignored it. Of course, the outward appearance is pretty irrelevant. It's not that important, really, if the heart is right. And I'm sure with some of them, the heart was right. But I've had this discussion with um, various Anglicans and Catholics about the wearing of robes, and, it, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of them are godly men. But why go against what our Master tells us? But much wor worse, though, than wearing funny hats and dresses and things is, is that they, these scribes were using their positions of power to, to make themselves rich and at the expense of the most vulnerable in society, the widows. You know, widows in those days, um, they de women depended entirely on men for their income. If they had it, hus their, their income came from their husband's work. If their husband died, that they would depend on their father or their sons or their brothers, and if they had none of those, they were in deep trouble. And apparently these scribes were exploiting this and making themselves rich at their expense. And then to try and cover that up, they would make long, uh, pious prayers that everybody else could hear. You know, be very wary about praying in public. I am very wary of praying in public, like even here in church, in front of other people, that we don't use it as an occasion to show our, our piousness or our, our godliness. I love the way kids pray in church, and I love the way new Christians pray in, pray in church. They're full of humility and trust and honesty, and uh, it's a thing that I find very difficult to, to do myself. Um, 
You know, though over in uh, in Matthew, Jesus says this about praying. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, the hypocrites being the scribes. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. Okay, so what lessons can we take from these scribes? How are we to avoid falling into the same trap and become like them? Because most of us are actually pretty knowledgeable about the law. And, uh, and a lot of us have had to take a stand in the last few years on the scriptures, uh, particularly over the, over the issue of marriage and, uh, and sexuality. In fact, in a lot of ways, gospel church is here because of this, this very issue. So how do we avoid becoming like the scribes? Because in some ways we are a lot like them. We believe in God's law. We believe the Ten Commandments are not just suggestions for a better life. Um, how do we avoid becoming like them? Uh, you know, Matthew tells us that, that the scribes tied up heavy loads which were hard to bear and put them on people's shoulders and then wouldn't lift a finger to help them. Well, as always, we must look to our master for an example. Jesus is strong and kind. There is nowhere in the Bible where Jesus compromises on the word of God. Let's get that straight for a start. But we see him bringing down the proud and the outwardly righteous. And yet some who've spent their lives breaking God's law, he lifts them up. Think about Zacchaeus or the lost son in chapter 15 of Luke who, who, who squandered his father's money on prostitutes. Or the, the tax collector in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And probably most famously, the, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. If you don't know the story, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, brought this woman who'd been caught in adultery to Jesus and said, look, Moses told us we have to kill her. We have to st throw stones at her until she's dead. What do you say we should do? And Jesus said nothing. But they kept pestering him and saying, what, 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 do you, what should we do with her? And he said, the one of you who has no sin can throw the first stone at her. And one by one, beginning with the eldest, they all went away. And there was no one left to condemn her. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you, but go and do not sin again. Jesus is the one who has the power to cast all of these people, to cast us into hell. And yet, every time we saw him come face to face with, with sinners, he treated them with love and compassion. You know, we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
a great verse to memorize. But not so well known is the verse that comes straight after it. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He's our, Jesus is our gold standard, our faultless example of how we should approach sinners with love and mercy and compassion, just as he did. Knowing, knowing full well that Jesus treated me, he treated us in exactly the same way. There's, a, there's an equivalent passage to this that we've read this morning in Matthew 23 that's much longer and much more detailed. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, Jesus says in that is, you must obey the scribes. You must do what they say, but don't do what they do. For they don't practice what they preach. Because one of the things that Jesus hated is, uh, is, was hypocrisy. And in that way, he has something in common with the world. The world, everyone hates hypocrisy. We hate it when people say something, one thing and do something else. We must, all of us in the church who call ourselves by, by his name, we must make sure that our lives, as much as we can, live up to what we say. There's so many people who have used that as their excuse to leave the church, to deny God when they see the, 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 usually the hierarchy of the church, but sometimes just the ordinary people of the church saying one thing on Sunday and doing something else during the week. <coughs> For the world out there, the people out there who, are, who don't regularly come to church already think that what we preach here is... Be good like us and you won't go to hell. That, that's the message that most people think is preached in church, people who don't go to church. But somehow, we must find a way to not be like the scribes. We must find a way to be uncompromising on the law and yet be gracious in the same way that our Father has been gracious to us. You know, Luther said to preachers that they should preach 90% grace and 10% law. He, he said because people hear the law uh, they hear it so clearly but they don't hear grace. They just don't seem to listen. Did anyone see Martin Isles on Q&A a few weeks ago? Um, there, was a, there was a homosexual bloke in the, in the audience who, uh, who asked Martin Isles why the church or why Christians or why Martin Isles in particular hates him and, and of course Martin said well we don't hate you that, of course we don't hate you because we, we in the church are all sinners we are just the same, exactly the same position as you that's what we like and we all depend on the grace of God for forgiveness and then you know, Martin said quite a bit about that and it was very good what he said but straight after that, the, one of the other panellists just went straight on as if he'd said nothing at all and said how Christians hate homosexuals. And Martin said, well, hang on, I just said, I was just oh, yeah, yeah, you know. They, do, they just do not hear grace. They hear condemnation. They hear, uh, they hear the law. So somehow we have to be very careful uh, in the way we deal with 
with sinners in regards to the law. Well, on to the second bit of today's reading, the, the widow and her two small coins. Well, once again, we don't want to be distracted by the fact that there's a change of chapter here. Um, Luke would certainly have meant that these two readings that we've had this morning uh, were meant to be read together because they both occur in the temple and it's in one, one piece of Jesus talking. The scribes, because he, he's certainly still re referring to the scribes as he, as he uh, tells this story about the woman who comes in and puts two small coins in. Uh, you know, he's called them hypocrites. Uh, because they apparently, they love to show their generosity to the church. They, they were very good at giving money to the church, um, abundantly, uh, so that everyone would notice. They wanted to make sure that everyone knew how generous they were. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus also says, when you give, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do, to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward. That's what, that's what they were doing. They were, when they made an offering in church, they'd have someone marching in front of them with a trumpet so that everyone would watch and see how much they were putting in. Look, the important thing about this is to think about the temple, what the temple meant to the people of Israel, um, what it meant to the scribes and what it meant to this woman who was coming in and what's going on here. Because in Jewish, uh, in the Jewish custom and their theology to go into the temple was to come into the presence of God that's how that, if you wanted to meet with God that's how you did it you went to the temple and, they, and you came there to worship God so and it was customary as you came into the temple to come in to meet God and to meet with him and to worship to put money into the, to the uh, pots that were put out for you to to, uh, to support the work of the temple. Now the scribes and the Pharisees came in giving what actually cost them very little and, and they received much. They received recognition and status as well as their pay. Whereas the woman was entering <coughs> the presence of God at great cost to herself. In fact, she was willing to give everything she had to do that. Look, I'm not trying to to drum up your giving here like some sort of prosperity preacher um, because it, uh, you know, our church, of course we need money uh, and through the generosity of the people of this church this, ever since gospel church started we've never, we've never wanted for anything we've had everything we need but there are always needs in God's church um, outside of this building uh, you know, all the, all the organisations like Barnabas Fund and Compassion all those who desperately ought need money for the work of God around the world, that, that the poor will always be with us. Um, so our, our giving really, if, if our example is to be this woman who Jesus commended, our, our, our giving should be measured not by, by how much we give, but how much we have left over. Again, our standard is not what the richest person can give but our, our measure is the Lord Jesus to use Paul's words he, he said remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich 
He gave everything he had, even his life. Well, at, at first glance, perhaps this, this reading does seem to be all about money and how much I should give, and, and it would certainly be easy to construct a sermon all around that. But the much more important question is, how much of me should I give? I can remember when, I, as, a, as a young man, I thought that if I went to church once a week, I was doing God a great favour to give him one hour of my time. But if God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, he's never go- he was never going to be with one happy with one 168th of my life. So it's 168 hours in a week. How much does he want? Well, look at the poor widow. Out of her poverty, she put in everything that she had to live on. So not... 20, 50, 100 hours a week, but 168. That's what he wants. But Lord, be reasonable. What about my work? What about my family? What about a time for a holiday? Well, do you think God doesn't know that? Of course he knows that. He knows what we need. He knows what, even what we want. And, and God is not a ruthless tyrant who wants his people to be under a heavy yoke all the time. Come to me on the door there. Come to me all you labour and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Not more work, rest. So in some ways, I think, um, some ways I think I'm wasting my breath preaching this because God is going to, to lead us to where we need to be. He's not going to let us live in error. Um, you know, Medieval, the medieval church taught that we needed to suffer for our sins. And so people would, would do all sorts of things like, you know, crawl a hundred miles on their knees to punish themselves for their sins. And uh, Thomas More, one of the Catholic saints who was, who was executed by Henry VIII, he, he, he was a man, he was a lawyer of some importance in the church. And he wore the long flowing robes, but underneath that he wore a, a shirt made of camel's hair so that it was always itchy and uncomfortable. And he had a little whip that he would whip himself to punish himself for his sins. That, that is not what God is about. Um, Jesus has taken the punishment for us. We are not to, to go around... Uh, being miserable because we think that that's what God wants. Uh, you know, Jesus says, I, I've come to bring you joy. The medieval church thought that if they could just make themselves miserable enough, then that would stop, might stop them sinning again. But, you know, we've read, we read before John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, I, he has come to give us rest. <coughs> you know, when, we, when, when, when I pray and I start my prayer with dear Father, our Father, how, how do we, I always have trouble thinking of God as my father. 
It's not that I didn't have a good dad. I had a good dad. He was a, a good man and probably a, a product of his time um, who d didn't say much about God to me but, uh, but lived as a Christian. Um, but even so, I struggled to think of God as a father because no matter how good a dad you've got, uh, it's not, he's not like God. So, look, this is a, just a little thing that I've, that I've found helpful for me is I actually don't, when I want to think of God as my father, I don't think of, of my own father. I, I actually think of myself as a father. Now, I know that sounds very presumptuous, but, but the, the hear me out. The reason I do is because I know, even though I don't think I'm much of a father, I have good intentions. You know, I know what I should do as a father. Uh, I want my children to be happy. I want them, I, I, I want them to, to follow the Lord. I, I want good health for them. I want all those, I, I want their, their children to be happy. I, you know, I want all these good things for them. Well, how much more does God, our Father, want that for us? And, and he is not marred by sinfulness like I am. And so how much more is he going to, to give good things to his children? Because he is capable of doing it, unlike me. He is well able to give us good things. So when you pray and you pray, Our Father, think like that. Here, here is the, the perfect Father who, who does all the things that, that you would do if you were a good Father, uh, a good and perfect Father, and he is also capable of actually delivering us. You know, God has promised that he will, um, <coughs> will guide us. There's so many scriptures that tell us about God's guidance. Psalm 23, uh, he will lead me in paths of righteousness. Um, Romans 8, verse 23, um, you know, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. Um, Psalm, Psalm 73, I am always with you and you hold me by my right hand and you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire above you. My heart and my flesh may fail. My heart and my flesh will fail. But you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. <coughs>